You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Downers, welcome back to the show. I tell you what, I have been watching some Netflix lately, and I got caught up on that documentary, Wild Wild Country. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it is really fantastic. If you wanted to, you could pause it and watch it right now. It's kind of long, a few parts there, and then continue with the episode. But it's this documentary about this, I don't know, I guess it's a cult, for lack of a better word, that moved from India. They had a, a guru leader, and they moved to in, from India to this remote town in Oregon and tried to build this giant city, and they had all this money and all this crazy stuff happened. And they were all following this cult leader, guru, named Bhagwan. It was just so exciting, but it was, it had me really thinking a whole bunch when I'm looking at, uh, you know, Christianity and the cultures that I come out of and even the church that I was a part of, Marcel Church. There's so many things about that when you combine charisma with the social interactions and the things that just, you know, cult stuff. Cults are interesting. Uh, Charles Manson to Jim Jones to Christian cults to Indian guru cult. That, that, these things are just fascinating, and so I wanted to talk to somebody a little bit deeper about it. And so I'm, today I'm talking to Daniel Shaw, who is a psychoanalyst and an author and a clinical supervisor and a teacher. And uh, he also was in a cult and then got out of the cult and does a bunch of cult recovery stuff and has done a whole bunch of work on it, seems to understand it really, really well. So I thought it'd be very interesting, and it was very interesting to talk to him and, and try to get a, a grip on it because, you know, it's that thing where it's so, it's so weird to think about or or be in a cult or talk about one or, or everybody says that's not one or that is one and it's it's just you know there's no the definitions are even very slippery about it and it's obviously very fascinating hence the episode today and uh, the episode you're gonna like it is brought to you by Rockabilia who is is the website rockabilia.com where you're supposed to go to get all your merch for bands and pop culture and posters and all that kind of stuff there you get 15% off when you shop with our promo code it's PC Jabberjaw and go get you a good Nirvana shirt or something a classic like that and you'll you'll be happier for a gift something like that also brought to you by Emery the band the band I'm in to play guitar for working on a new record exciting stuff probably Emery's going to be playing some new songs on tour very soon in June, and that'll be the whole West Coast from Seattle down to, you know, San Diego, and then kicking over to Phoenix, Arizona, and that's basically the first week of June. I'll let you look at the tickets on emorymusic.com. Pick out one of those shows, and no, we're going all the way to El Paso, Texas, sorry, uh, but pick out one of those shows and try to come to it. Try to see what it's all about if you've never seen Emory. Uh, it's a fun time. I think we're going to have a very good set, very, very good set, probably with new material in it, too. So emorymusic.com on that, and here we go. Let's do the episode. Break it down, Dada. Break it down, oh, break it down. 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 Let's make Yeah. Okay, so I don't know all of your work, but got interested in it, and somebody sent it to me, and I've watched some of your YouTube. I saw you talk you did on YouTube recently, and I personally... Um, am very interested in cults themselves. It's just always been fascinating. There's something about the word cult that way back as a kid, it just always had this connotation to me that was like, 
I don't I don't know how to explain it, but like mysterious, but like cool. <laughs> I know that's kind of weird, but it's just got this like seriousness, this gravity toward the 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 term itself. And then, mm-hmm. um, and I'll just this is much background. I'm not trying to talk all do all the talking here, but I'm just trying to catch up, give you the background, me, so we can get into sure. talking. But I was uh, part of a big evangelical megachurch for a long time, relatively recently that. You know, people don't call it a cult, but man, it was a narcissistic uh, leader who was very, you know, was really, really in that world of spectrum. And I'm comfortable looking back on that now and saying there's a lot of cult-like things and groupthink to a pretty high level. And um, a lot of the narcissistic stuff was really there and just so many human dynamics that I have a little bit of experience with now mm-hmm. um that i'm processing years later when i hear stuff mm-hmm. and then recently i watched the netflix documentary wild wild country are you familiar with it i did watch that sure and so those things together i thought it'd be real interesting to talk to somebody uh like you with your experiences cults and and stuff like that and do some exploring on that so that's the quick catch up to speed um uh-huh. is it true that you were involved in something that was like a, a cult you have experience right that? Yeah, I was, um, you know, I was trying to succeed as an actor in my 20s in New York, and I wasn't getting very far. Mm-hmm. I wasn't happy. I was I was having a rough time. Um, I had some good times, too. But it, at a certain point, it got really rough for me. And friends in the theater community were talking about this guru who teaches meditation. And some uh, famous entertainment uh, industry people were going to be holding a big introduction to meditation for people in the arts community in Manhattan. And I, uh, and it was going to be up in this uh, ashram in, in upstate New York. And uh, I said, okay, well, you know, well, I'll check that out. I'm having a rough time. Maybe, maybe this is something that could, that could give me a lift. I, I'd also had, um, some old-fashioned psychotherapy, you know, the kind where the person just sits there with a blank look and goes, uh-huh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. And, and it hadn't really been helpful. It was pretty discouraging. So this seemed like a possibility. I went up there, and it was quite a scene. I was very excited by it. Uh, so many creative, interesting, vibrant kind of people, lots of them, everybody meditating together. Um, good vegetarian food, <laughs> smelled good, looked good. Anyway, uh, long story short, I got really into it heavily after uh, I took a meditation intensive and had very, very beautiful, ecstatic, mystical kinds of experiences, which I guess if you know, you're know you familiar with evangelicism, kind of like getting the Holy Spirit in a big way, really big way. Yep. So it was so compelling. And then it wasn't long before I said, you know, I want to be a part of this. And I started to um, live communally in that group. And eventually I got a staff position within the group. And it was 13 years before I woke up and said to myself, I've been in a cult. For 13 years. Yeah. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I had been all over the world. I had become a spokesperson, an educator publicity organizer recruiter for the group you know real like a like a real missionary um but not so much you know 
building houses for poor people, but trying to get rich people to come spend their money on the guru. And I didn't see it in that cynical way until I left. Mm-hmm. Once I left, I understood that, uh, well, I had experienced a great deal of abuse uh, personally at the hands of the guru. And um, I had, of course, witnessed this for many, many years. And yet, you know, we always had it rationalized. Like, this is how, this is how you do spiritual work. You know, you, you have to purify yourself. You have to break your ego, etc., etc. This was a Hindu-oriented group. It's not unlike other groups that are Buddhist-oriented. And it, it's not unlike Christian or, or Judaic or, or Muslim groups as well. In fact, it's not unlike political groups and marketing groups uh-huh. or any group in which a leader has a tremendously charismatic personality and a tremendous uh, disregard for boundaries. And that was the that was the main experience that I'm left with is that ultimately while I was there, I I it, came, it became acceptable for me to have my boundaries violated and to watch other people's boundaries be violated and to say nothing and do mm-hmm. nothing. And um, so when I left, uh, I was I was um, newly married to somebody else in the group. We left together and I was starting my graduate work in social work, uh, planning to become a psychotherapist. And I ended up writing my first paper at the end of grad school called Traumatic Abuse in Cults. Mm-hmm. And it's a subject I've been studying since then, since 1994. So the uh, so it's really, when you boil it down, you get those elements of charismatic leader plus uh, boundaries violated. Is that a, a working definition, or is that just what's, what's underneath know, it, or uh, what? Sure. There Pretty are, hard to define there, cult, there are a number, Right. Well, there are a number of elements uh, and a number of different ways to define a cult. One of the, um, you know, and, and it's important to try to understand what we're talking about because that word can get thrown around a lot. And um, I, so for me, and my definition is a little bit idiosyncratic, it's not necessarily a universal definition, but I see it as any group consisting of a leader and a follower or any number of followers from one to, uh, you know, millions mm-hmm. in which uh, the, uh, the group uh, describes itself as being on a certain kind of mission that's uh, typically very grandiose, um, world peace, ending world hunger, um, you know, bringing enlightenment to the masses, whatever the, the stated mission is. And uh, the group is a cult when the actual work of the group is really only about inflating the delusional leader's idea of his own perfection and his own omnipotence. Mm -hmm. The actual work of a cult is to make sure that that guru is constantly, um, you know, placated so that they can hold on to their delusion mm-hmm. of omnipotence. Yes. And members' work is basically to glorify, basically to join that delusion mm-hmm. and glorify that deluded leader. Mm-hmm. And that's a cult. 
Okay, so that helps to get at one of the main things there that makes it hard for people is people want to ascribe, I find this, or I think this is true, that people like to ascribe a lot of understanding and motive to things that even the participants don't understand themselves. So, for instance, you would think with these cult leaders, like they're these super, like they know everything and everything's calculated from the get-go and they knew what they were doing, how these goals, but the way you're describing it there makes it a lot easier to understand that they are deluded. It starts as a delusion in their head and they aren't even aware of the amount of mastermind that they appear to be. Is that the case? I, I think that I do think the delusional element is important. It doesn't mean that they aren't cunning and conniving and manipulative. They are. Mm-hmm. Cult leaders always are. But that is all in the service of uh, what they see as their mission, and uh, which is to, you know, proclaim their greatness and and uh, have followers follow them and create a world in which they are viewed as, as the greatest, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Hitler's of course, the 20th century ultimate example of how bad this can get, but there's a million, uh, well, there's thousands of small and large and medium groups in which a leader has that kind of delusional inflated, egomania mm-hmm. and and uh, but enough intelligence and charisma to attract followers and as long as those followers buy into that delusion that leader can keep making mm-hmm. himself bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. um the thing about these leaders is that they're they're not stable and when they're exposed and humiliated or or um uh law enforcement goes after them or they're um publicly exposed in some expose or other, they often uh, just go out of their minds and uh, literally. And, and so they're not, they're not stable. They're trying to hold on to a delusion of this magnificence and they're lucky enough to get themselves followers who help them hold on to it. Mm-hmm. But it is, um, you know, people think cult leaders are psychopaths. Yes. Sociopaths. Yes. They're also, in my view, delusional narcissists Mm -hmm. believing in their own ultimate superiority and perfection. And, and so, but they, but they can stumble into the thing, right? Like if you have charisma and then other people bolster it and they're acting that way to you, it's, it's yourself insulated, even not by design. It just kind of, a lot of them evolve over time into what they become. Am I seeing that? A lot of them, a lot of them, uh, a lot of them began uh, as very awkward and very, um, you know, diff- humiliated uh, kids or teenagers. Mm-hmm. A lot of them had uh, real struggles with mental illness in their early 20s. Um, what happens is that they come out of that with this delusion that they have seen, you know, some kind of enlightenment. And... Um, the delusion is, uh, is powerful, and it's it becomes uh, exciting and charismatic and attractive. So some some people are born into the role and groomed for it, but m- most of the people who call themselves these kinds of cult leader, they don't call themselves cult leaders, although some of them do, but they call themselves gurus or masters or what have you. Um, they 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 didn't start out 
that way. It's almost like the revenge of the nerds mm-hmm. for a lot of these people. They've had such a sort of a humiliating upbringing or, or uh, passes to young adulthood that they reinvent themselves and they flip it. They go from totally deflated to totally inflated. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very commonly the case with cult leaders. And then all the outcomes of the cult are just what's involved in the resources going into keeping up the charade. That's correct. Right. And that, That's right. And is that what you call traumatic narcissism? Is the fact that they were it was traumatic that they got the, the narcissism is 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 a is a outcome of the fact that they were tra- had some something traumatic in their formative years. Well, that yeah, that's actually what I believe uh, that there is an intergenerational kind of trauma there. But in this case, this trauma, this kind of humiliated narcissism, you know, is your uh, ability to to hold on to your self esteem, and shame is the thing that is you know most um, destructive to self-esteem. So uh, a narcissist is a person who finds a way to deny their shame, their sense of inferiority, by, by in this manic way, narcissistically proclaiming themselves to be superior. Mm-hmm. Now, when it goes to a certain point, it becomes important for that kind of person to dominate and control others. Um, others need to be, uh, they, they need to prove to themselves that other people are weak and dependent. And what, you know, what better than to have a flock of sheep that you can be the shepherd for, right? You know, they're weak, they're dependent, and, um, and now they need you. And so they prey on uh, people in the, it, it, because they need people to be their followers, kind of like the way Dracula needs people that mm-hmm. he can suck the blood out of. Mm-hmm. It's really a, a very apt metaphor. Yeah, and so, yeah, to, to me, so let's talk about in the context of Wild Wild Country, just because I imagine people can get a grip on that. If they haven't seen it, uh, watch mm-hmm. it. Uh, did you like it? I mean, how did you find that, that piece? I'll tell you something. They... Uh, you know, as good as it was, and it was, I, I would want to give them credit. They they did a good job, but they uh, they did not fully document the the horror and the the cruelty and the insanity of the abuses that took place in that community. The way children were neglected and abused, the way women were um, demeaned and abused, especially, and and. Uh, you know, they, they spent a lot of time uh, in the documentary interviewing people who, who remember it all with a nostalgic glow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's called um, euphoric recall in 12-step programs. When uh, they spent much less focus on those people who could document the horrors. And they're really, this was a particularly horrific group. Um, you know, so, so in that sense, I felt, as though, uh, you know, they really uh, could have done a better job. Uh, you know, the, the Scientology documentary, Going Clear, mm-hmm. does a very good yeah, job. Yeah, that's great. And uh, Leah Remini's uh, show on A&E about uh, leaving Scientology is actually uh, one of the best of the genre because you hear from people who left 
who who actually are able to describe far more um, with far more perspective the extent of the abuse. Mm-hmm. And and if it's a cult, it's abusive. That's what makes it a cult. Okay, that's that's kind of helpful there. So I was going to wa- wondering about the gradations, but even abuse is a you know, there's gradations of what you call abuse. Uh, they're just, they're just is, but so like in wild, wild country, I think maybe if they, I, I, like you said, I'm sure there's way worse stuff that was happening. That it, did, it didn't help their narrative. I think what they were trying to do there was give you a little bit of the ability to side with the Rajneeshis. I think, I think they wanted you to be able to sympathize enough to be gripped and entertained. So they didn't make it as bad as it was. And I think they wanted to make those Oregonians maybe seem like they were a little bit closed minded or worse than they might have been. I'm just speculating on motives there. Um, well, uh, yeah, I think that would do a disservice because I think, uh, you know, it became clear when, when the Rajneeshis decided to poison the salad bar mm-hmm. so that people to find out if they could do that so they could prevent people from voting in the election. Mm-hmm. I think it came pretty clear that the local people kind of had a, had a, uh, you know, kind of had a sense of what was going on yeah. and that they weren't just narrow minded. In fact, those people came off to me as sane and sensible people. They weren't hicks. They weren't yeah. fools. They, they knew there was something bad happening. And there. Right, yeah. and there was, there really was. So that guy there, Bhagwan, he, I couldn't figure out because I don't know the rest of the history of that other than what's in the documentary, but I couldn't figure out what he was actively doing and masterminding versus what programs that he had set. It was all these yes men and plausible deniability and everybody else just running the thing and him literally just sitting back. And I, you know, I couldn't get a grip on how string pulley he actually was in that in that documentary. Well, I think, uh, again, I think that was an omission. It was perfectly clear to me watching this, knowing what I know about cults, my own experience. And, you know, I've been I've been counseling people for more than 20 years who have left cultic Mm -hmm. relationships and um, cultic groups. And I've heard about, uh, you know, dozens of different kinds of cult leaders. Right. And I've I've really tried to study this. So I have no doubt that Bhagwan Rajneesh absolutely uh, masterminded every single thing and that his lieutenant, Sheila, mm-hmm. <coughs> pardon me. No problem. <coughs> his lieutenant, Sheila, um, was absolutely obeying his orders to a T. Mm-hmm. And yes, she became inflated herself, but everything she did, he commanded her to do. And when it got too close to him, he threw her under the bus. Mm-hmm. And that's just yeah. standard cult behavior. Yeah. So he, he, you know, he was fully in command and in charge and aware. And you know, I have no all, doubt about that whatsoever. Specific. Yeah, that that makes he sense. May have been, he may have been a drug addict, mm-hmm. and uh, he I, I, he did uh, he did um, traffic in drugs, and uh, you know his doctors may have been keeping him drugged in, in some ways. But what he wanted was power and money and control, and he got it. Yeah, and he had it, and uh, he wanted. Um, people in front of him to act as shields and that's what they did and when push came to shove they got they got hung out to dry Mm -hmm. so when you talk about abuse being is that really being the deciding factor 
uh, what is what would you consider the minimum? I mean, you said you suffered abuse, so maybe even go of what what was the nature of that, or what would be the minimum sure. thing that somebody could say is abuse from a institution or societal structure or group or community that would that, including the fact that it has a leader that would be a candidate for that that would actually you come down and say, okay, well there we go, we have the charismatic leader, a group, and abuse. Therefore, it's cult. What's the minimum bar for abuse? Right. There? Well, look. There are um, different uh, frameworks to th think about this. One of them is the criminal justice system mm -hmm. framework, right? So that's the one that's going to bring somebody to justice because they are um, involved in sex trafficking or drug trafficking or uh, arms trafficking, uh, all of which Rajneesh was. And there are many other gurus as well, including mine. Uh, who get involved in these activities. Now, uh, the way it gets organized, the, the cult members are involved as well, and it all seems as though it's for a divine purpose or some sort of, you know, idealistic mission. But um, when everything is said and done, what it actually is, is trafficking. So, so there's the criminal justice framework. There's also the moral framework. And there's a and I, I'm talking about what the abuse that, that is morally um, uh, destructive and, and cruel, I'm talking about cruelty. And the, the particular form it takes, which I think of as what is traumatic, is that you are um, groomed to uh, become uh, totally dependent. And in that state, you're then kept in submission through intimidation and belittling and humiliation. Mm -hmm. and or, or threat you of, are, right? Pardon? Or threat thereof. Yeah. No, it's usually pretty, uh, mm -hmm. it's usually pretty directly administered okay. by the leader and, a, and a, a group around the leader of lieutenants, let's say. And it was certainly directly administered at me. And uh, indirectly, and then more and more directly, and um, and and the purpose of all of this is to simply create entirely submissive beings who have been completely subjugated to the will of the leader, who can then be deployed as agents of the leader, uh, willing to do whatever it takes to support and defend the leader. Um, some people would uh, think of Michael Cohen. Donald Trump's lawyer as such a person. We'll, 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 maybe we won't get into that because that's, that, gets, that gets very controversial. But, um, you know, my, my, my experience is that uh, the leader uh, breaks people down in order to be able to have them in a state of complete subjugation. And to do that to another human being is dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. It's objectifying and it's cruel. It's just cruelty. Yeah. And and yes, you could say that those of us who got into this, we allowed it to be done to us. We subjugated ourselves. That's true. Yeah. But that's not what we signed up for. We signed up for self improvement or spiritual growth or or uh, you know whatever it was. We didn't sign up to be abused and psychologically tortured. But once you once you're groomed and you're uh, really kind of in that dependent state 
you 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 get further and further subjugated. Mm-hmm. So that's what I consider to be traumatic. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And subjugation, what a powerful word and concept. And I heard you speak on it a little bit before, and I've been thinking about that word today, but it's, um, you know, it, the weird thing about all this is that we have these, these things are just, they're not necessarily even taught, like they must just be in humans and we all have the ability to subjugate and be subjugated. Like that's kind of, yeah. that's the freaky thing to stare at here is these patterns would emerge if you just put people in a place and let them figure shit out there's some fraction of this where it's just the way we do. It's just in people. Yeah. I, I, I think that's right. And I think it takes a hell of a lot of effort in any relationship or any group uh, for things not to collapse into that uh, place of domination and submission mm-hmm. more so than we might realize. But um, that is, unfo- that is a, uh, um, a breakdown uh, in in um, human relating that domination submission, I need to I need to control you because you're trying to control me, and um, you know that that kind of dynamic is what is what happens when um, you know mutuality breaks down when mutual uh, you know Martin Buber uh, the philosopher spoke of the I thou relationship and in that in that relationship each human being respects the the unique individuality of the other and and doesn't want to you know control it or dominate it or, or subjugate it but that relationship breaks down frequently in a marriage in a you know in in most relationships unless both parties really hold very very you know really hold the idea that they want to create that mutuality of the value um, of the person <laughs> versus usefulness yeah. of the person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly. So I, I look at it slightly differently because that's from the moral frame, I suppose, you know, is that's that we, right. we want to be mutually agreed on and mutuality of people and their value and that kind of thing. However, that's not the, that's not our history. That we've almost that's new that we were right. The old way is just Genghis Khan style, or you know, yeah, like yeah. he's well, just in know, charge, and everybody else is glad that the strong guy's in charge. Look, if he tells me what to do, I get a few, you know, things will go well for me. I mean, that's the normal absolutely. way of people. Absolutely, but you know, look, it's also the story of uh, the, the the Old Testament is the uh, you know people escaping freedom with the help of God, mm-hmm. escaping slavery. So slavery is the ultimate form of subjugation, and it goes back to the deepest roots of our history. Mm-hmm. You're you're absolutely right. It's about the natural that. ways, but as, as awful as that is, that's you have to stare at that a little well, bit. It's not a good. I think you're right. Yeah, and but I also think it's natural for for there to be a, a way in which people choose uh, mutual respect, mutuality. Mm-hmm. And people, do, that's natural too. It's just that it's always intention true. with the other, with, with with the other dynamic. That's true. I suppose even if you went back thousands of years and you had two people encounter each other, they would at first experience each other with some mutuality. I think. No, I'm not sure. Right. It's confusing to think. They about. might. They might. They might initially have be fearful and want to mm-hmm. dominate and control. Yeah, right. They might have to learn. Uh, that mutuality is a possibility. That might 
that might have had an evolutionary uh, benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so did so did the other have an evolutionary benefit. So I think as a human race, we're stuck with the dialectic of these two possibilities mm-hmm. and uh, have to make choices about what you know, where we want to plant our feet. Yeah, it's weird because it feels like this little blippy outcome in society. Like, oh, there's these cults. They spring up from time to time. They're this or that. They're not really pervasive, or I don't think that they are. But it's it's weird because they're so strong once they get going. This is like you can't – everything – every quirk – it's like even if it's a quirk, it's such a powerful quirk, and people are so ashamed to talk about it or admit it or even think – or really consider the – point of view to themselves that's the one of the weirder things about it is um it's just you feel like an idiot right yeah yeah you're right uh you know it took a long time for the public to have any awareness of uh domestic violence or incest Mm -hmm. or sexual abuse and those issues are still uh, or rape right Mm -hmm. those those are massive uh, uh examples of boundary violations right and um for a long time, none of that was ever spoken of. It was something you didn't talk about if it happened to you. Uh, you know, that, that changed. Soldiers came back from Vietnam and were traumatized, and that had to be recognized. Uh-huh. That, that was, you know, that, that was being, you know, forgotten. And it periodically gets forgotten all over again that combat veterans are profoundly traumatized. Uh, in in uh, in warfare, you know, so so these traumatic experiences of the total loss of your boundaries and or violation of boundaries are are very ubiquitous, actually. And cults, communities of people in which um, boundaries are routinely violated, uh, are also ubiquitous. Far far more of them than you might imagine. Many of them very very small, mm-hmm. uh, others a little bigger. Some of the things that look like regular organizations, in fact, don't function other than as a cult, uh, you know, as a as a means of glorifying the leader. So so, and and when I talk to different groups, I've talked to students uh, uh, after after my talk. A couple of them raised their hand and said, "Well, I was in the military." And what you're describing to me sounds like the military is a cult. Uh-huh. Well, it has it has features in which people are asked to, um, you know, are dominated in order to be subjugated, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a purpose there, and there's also a process. At least in theory, there's a process where grievances can be brought up the chain. Yeah, but like you said, the, the drill sergeant humiliates you, and right, like gets it totally. violates your boundaries. It seems like from the movies, at least. Well, that's that's what I hear, and I've, I've talked to veterans who describe this. And yet, there is a process to bring justice, uh, even though ah. it, it doesn't always work right. as it should. Nevertheless, it is there, right? Like they're aware there's of no, trying to stop cultism. Like there's forces there, and courts, and oversight, and checks and balances yeah. that at least yes. are intending to do that function because there's some aspect of cultism that's us its own spiral that you have to actively ward off basically well yeah abuse of power Mm -hmm. right um but a cult has no such system Mm -hmm. a cult is uh is led by a monarch a self-proclaimed monarch who considers themselves 
the mm-hmm. ultimate, uh, you know, voice of God. And that's the, any, anything goes uh, according to whatever they have to say. So there's no justice. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah and if they, yeah. If they say feature. blue is, blue is actually pink. You better also say it's pink. There's no recourse. Yeah. If you say it's blue, it's off with your head. That's, yeah. that's, that, that makes that's sense. That, that Yes. I find that, I find that helpful. Uh, to it, and it's weird because it's they're blinders for whoever. Like you could be way in a cult and you could look out and just pick out every other cult. And go, that's one. There's one. There nah. you go. There you go. And not see that you're in one. Is that? Oh, that that was classic. All of the <laughs> all of the famous cults of the seventies, you know, love to joke around about how such and such group was a cult, but we're 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 a good cult. Would be a typical. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Uh, way of talking about it. So is there, you think there's a wave of like waking up to it and recognizing it? Like those other things you said with rape and sexual abuse and uh, I don't remember what the other, they're just taboo subjects in a way that, that carry a lot of shame culturally. And so even if you've been a victim, you don't want to talk about it. And we're seeing more and more waves of that waking up. Do you think abuse of power? I'm here, I, to be honest, I'm hearing this a lot in a bunch of uh, Christian and ex-Christian circles where the nature of some of the problems that churches are having and evangelical churches are, and it's not this bad, and because anybody going, oh well, he this didn't happen to me, so you know whatever. But these elements that they can seem like they can get worse and worse and spiral and be in degrees. But a lot of these things are circling around, you know, charismatic leaders and slight, what seem like slight abuses of power, and more and more people come forward. There's a momentum to that in my circles. Do you think that's a larger phenomenon that people are understanding the nature of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky? That, oh, it's a power differential, and thus in, inherent in that's the abuse and so forth. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, the meat, uh, pardon me. <laughs> Sorry about that. The Me Too movement is certainly an example of this. There is a uh, there is a system uh, in our society where um, some men uh, feel that they have the right to exploit women or to try to control women, and the Me Too movement certainly let's just let's just talk about it in terms of Hollywood has has had a tremendous impact mm-hmm. in terms of the entertainment industry. Uh, tremendous! It's already had a big impact, and I and hopefully it will continue. Um, and uh, and yet, I would say that when it comes to cults, the majority of people still think of that as some rarefied, weird thing over there that's not happening here. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mistake. It's happening everywhere, and um, whether it's minor, uh, you know or, or a low level abuse or massive abuse, like a Jonestown mass suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's abuse, it's cruelty. And it's, it's the abuse of people. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the cruel, uh, subjugation of, of human beings by other human beings that, that happens, you know, that's that's a that's everywhere, and I'm not saying you know uh, you know uh, you you have to like uh, be paranoid about all your groups and all your relationships and everything else. I I do think that this is a a problem that has yet to really 
be well addressed. European and uh, countries and Australia, by the way, have much better protections against uh, this kind of abuse in cults. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're a little behind here. I, I think because, in part because religious groups uh, want to claim religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, that course, that might be part of the our DNA in America. I read a book called Fantasyland by Kurt Anderson, and he he explains Americans as like the more far fetched believing, fantastical belief, looking for something a miracle. That's why how we got here in the first place, and that's what we've always been about. And we've invented our own, you know, versions of religion that are even more fantastical than the ones that came from Europe, and you know, all, all that, so on and so forth. But it's also yep. like an issue of just putting a face and a name and a language and words to things that are happening. You know what I mean? Once people hear it, go, oh, yeah, yeah, and you have the language of abuse of powers. People understand the concept of subjugation. Then you can start to see it. Once you have words so then you know what i mean that that's it seems yes. to be part of it so i wouldn't be surprised yeah. if you're right if we f- continue to find this more and more and the shame part lifts a little bit is uh do you find that that it's like oh what an idiot for falling for it but or do you find that anybody can be is it weak people that i'm sorry let me ask this question a two-parter here i'll, I'll say it better yeah. than i was stumbling into it there number yeah. one how dependent is it on narcissism and number two, how dependent is it on the people being weak-minded people? Right. Well, is, look, cults and the rest of us attract, don't have to worry about it. Cults attract uh, uh, middle-class, college-educated people, okay, and mostly white people. Although there are also cults that are more uh, geared towards uh, Latin Americans and African Americans. Mm-hmm. The biggest cults have always been mostly drawing in middle-class, college-educated white people. Is that because um, they have money, though? <laughs> it's because um, they have, uh, they, they, they're looking for, um, they're looking for some kind of uh, community and some sort of higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay? And um, uh, anybody, anybody could be susceptible at a certain time in their life if they're going through stuff and it feels very, you know, burdensome and they feel kind of isolated or whatever it is, and they, they encounter a community that looks like it's got tremendous power and strength and optimism and hope, you know, you don't, you don't see the inner workings of that group when you first get involved. You're not saying, let me go find, uh, you know, an abusive a leader that I can subjugate myself to. You're looking to find a community of like-minded people who believe in something meaningful and who seem to be uh, purposeful about trying to create that. Yeah, that's how it looks when you when you join this kind of a group. You don't find out about you don't really find about the, out about the truth of it until you go you know closer and closer to the inner circles. Um, narcissist, the leaders are always narcissistic people. And um, the more narcissistic, the more likely it is they'll want to form a cult around themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a high level of narcissism in the leaders. And it's what I think of as normal human vulnerability in the followers who happen to have the bad luck to get into a relationship with a swindler as as uh, as many people do, rather than with somebody legit, mm-hmm. um, 
And it's not always easy to tell the difference. It really isn't. Yeah, I think as simple as it's too good to be true probably applies. If I'm thinking, you know, it seems that if there's a guru, I mean, a guru is that. It's just it's all dependent on him, and he's the one we take. We don't. We take the information. We you can't extract his process. That's that's right. what that's what a guru is, or or the leaders. Like, well, we take the facts, we take them to him, and he spits out how to interpret them and then we apply them versus, well, I, I'm super smart. I learned everything. I know all this stuff. I've done my research and we apply this method and that's how we get these results. That's not there. Right. A, a lot of cults uh, have a, a totally bogus framework that sounds exactly like that, uh-huh. but it's really actually just um, a front. You know, there's always two sets of books in a cult, the, the one for the public where the ideas sound good. <laughs> and there's the, the the hidden set of books full of what actually goes on there, uh, which is basically about uh, enriching the leader at the expense of the followers. Mm-hmm. The classic traps that are just based in human stuff. Narcissism seems to be like a pretty big thing. <laughs> seems like a lot of people have that when you're talking about a narcissist uh i heard you say that that was something i didn't quite understand because you're saying there's a grandiosity is off often accompanied but then you said there's the self-deprecating side like comedians do could you tell me more about that those two methods what i actually no what i actually mean to say that's not that's not quite what i mean uh what i mean to say is that um a narcissist is compensating for a tremendous uh shameful sense of uh, being weak and Mm -hmm. impotent. And the compensation for that is this delusion of omnipotence. Um, No, I'm not, I'm not impotent. I am omnipotent. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a, that's, that's how a narcissist solves the problem of feeling powerless, not good enough, inadequate, etc. By developing that delusion of omnipotence. Mm-hmm. And the worst narcissists, you know, convince whole nations or parts of whole nations that they actually are omnipotent. Um, there is uh, a, a significant segment of evangelical Christians right now who believe that Donald Trump is um, a manifestation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's a fact. I'm not making that up. So, uh, so narcissists are always going to uh, be have a powerful hold over uh, some people, whether it's their family, their spouse, their sibling, their their therapy patient, their students, um, their business associates. Narcissists will have a powerful hold over uh, others and. Um, uh, you know, sometimes reach uh, great heights of power. Well, what was the the? It was the flip side of grandiosity, though, that you said it can be self-deprecating. That I thought was interesting, but I didn't quite follow that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, if not, no big deal. Yeah, not exactly. I'm not sure that's. You, exactly you said Amy Schumer and Louis C.K. have a version where they oh. play around with the. They kind of well, play yeah, around yeah. with that boundary that I thought was interesting. Sure, I, no, I know what you're it. talking about. Right. Well, I thought Muhammad Ali was a great example of mm-hmm. somebody who was playful about the narcissism. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. that's right. I'm so powerful. I make medicine sick, right? Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's 
hilarious. And and yet he was powerful and he was strong and he was amazing. You know, and, and he took pride in that. But he played with that kind of narcissism. And and other comedians play with it by being self-deprecating about how um you know how how crazy and neurotic they are mm-hmm. or um you know um you know there they are charging a lot of money for a lot of people to look up at them and applaud them and admire them mm-hmm. and they're talking about how neurotic and messed up they are right yeah. so so in that sense narcissism uh, it gets played with it gets it gets uh, it gets evoked with irony mm-hmm. right but when it's when there's no irony or uh, you know a traumatizing narcissist has no irony it's not you know don't dare try to tease or 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 uh, you know kid a narcissist you'll you'll get mm-hmm. you you'll get swatted like a fly well it, it is is Muhammad Ali oh, or some comedians yeah. are they are they have narcissistic tendencies or can be narcissists and are dealing with that in a healthy way or you, or those people aren't that I think there are narcissists who probably deal with that in a healthy way and find ways of being empathetic or working at that you know but who nevertheless um, you know spend a great deal of time and energy on themselves okay I, I want to say that narcissism is on a spectrum. Uh-huh. There are ways in which people can be narcissistic, like on Facebook, showing off your kids and your vacations. Honestly, we're just all human beings. We have vanity. It's not. It's it's uh-huh. not toxic. You know, really, what I want to talk about is that kind of malignant, traumatic narcissism. Those are good words. Those are good words for it. Um, is there? A, a thing is there a is there a message for people? Is there things to think through? Is, is there help for the the narcissist themselves in, in any of this, or is it just we got to identify them and stay away from them? I'll tell you something. Uh, sure, I wrote a book, Traumatic Narcissism, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's done. It's done okay. It's getting read beyond the professional audience. I wrote it for. But um, there's 10 billion websites about narcissists mm-hmm. online, and they're very active. There's a lot of people involved in figuring out what's going on in this relationship and how is this about being with a narcissist. So this is not something people don't know about. Um, it, it's, it's something a lot of people know a lot about. But like when you get into some kind of a cult you and you figure it out, you leave, what you realize is you've been swindled. You've been conned. And, uh, and often there's no legal action you can take to do anything about it. And it's a tremendous betrayal. You put your heart and soul and faith into it. And you realize you were duped. You were swindled. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and yeah, you feel ashamed and gullible and stupid for let, letting that happen to you. But it's human. It happens to people all the time. And, um, you know, all I can say is that there's plenty of uh, information and resources. Uh, everywhere you go now, people have been trained to treat trauma. Uh, mental health professionals have. So um, I think people can find resources if they feel they 
been deceived or betrayed. Yeah, but the, the, but the but relation. the people that haven't run it through the filter yet of oh, is this a cult? Like the people that are not that are in, currently in the delusion is the, is the concern. Or, or okay. yeah, you know, look, um, uh, I'm part of a network of uh, professionals and lay people who are concerned about uh, raising awareness about cults. It's called the International Cultic Studies Association. And it's a not-for-profit organization. I volunteer uh, on a monthly basis to run a meeting in Manhattan for people who've left cults or family members with somebody in a cult. And that organization uh, is dedicated to trying to raise awareness. They have conferences, books, um, uh, workshops, and so on. But, uh, you know, um, it's, uh, it, it's not... It's not something that a lot of people want to acknowledge mm -hmm. when they've been in a cult. A lot of people want to try to forget all about it and put it behind them. And it's a, a smaller group of people who want to study it and think about it and talk about it and try to provide resources about it. So that's still a kind of a small movement. And I think over time, I hope uh, it will continue to grow. Yeah. So you've kind of got it. You know, you mentioned it a couple of times. I'm not afraid to talk about it, but Trump being the way that he is, it's crazy. I mean, he's crazy in the way that he is, and certainly narcissistic tendencies, it seems. I'm not one to diagnose, but the uh, interesting thing being that the the real supporters, which some of them, like you're saying, all the way down to think that he's divine or something like that. But way yeah. before that, you have just tons of people that are just going, they're, they're supporting for the sake of supporting itself like you see that cycle yeah. happening whether or not they think he's divine or way way into it it's just this obvious natural tendency to defend anything he does because you're already bought in and th that's happened at a yes. pretty national level yes so. yes well i think that um oh, yeah. that there's a the, uh, politically speaking there's been a very powerful uh, propaganda movement funded by billionaires for 30 or 40 years now which has um you know, has as its main uh, uh, mouthpiece, Fox News. And people are being brainwashed and deceived uh, by that. It's very, very charismatic and exciting. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's, and it's um, it, you know, it's just an extraordinary uh, thing to witness in this country. Uh, it is for me. I grew up in the Vietnam era. We protested in the streets. We saw the government was lying to us. We saw that our our our, our boys, our sons, uh, our brothers were being murdered needlessly. And we got up and we protested and we did something about it. And we didn't believe what we were being told. Uh -huh. And so, you know, there were regulations put in place and there were, there were, uh, um, you know, watchdogs, and there were all kinds of ways in which we thought, yeah, this isn't going to happen again. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, history does tend to repeat itself. That's interesting. I like hearing that from your point of view. Hey, yeah, that's actually interesting. Um, uh, Manhattan guy, theater actor that was there in the 70s, yeah, this is interesting getting to podcast and get to hear first person. Like, hey, look, we were protesting about this in the seventies, and kind of turns out you're right. Like, that just kind of hit me as you're telling me. I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Well, the, all of that is very helpful. And so, thanks for spending the time with me today and let me ask a few questions and poke around at this quite interesting topic that I think is important and will continue to be more important in time. So, thanks for the work you're doing, and we appreciate it. 
Thank you. Great talking to you. You got it. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s, and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.